I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. Jim Hamilton is an interesting guy. His career includes drums and percussion, often with well-known artists. But Jim also is a tap dancer who performs around the world. And he owns Rittenhouse Soundworks, an amazing recording studio in Philadelphia. He's also been a lifelong student of music and recording. I started by asking Jim about the things that influenced his career. Um, I think if I was to just describe my journey, I think it's just uh, very eclectic. I'm trying to understand the, the family I grew up in, like all of us, and the impact that it had on me. But um, I think because I was born uh, to parents that were professional dancers, I think I got overly rhythmically stimulated inside the womb. And so when I got out, and I was born in 1958, and my earliest memories are just hearing music all over the house. My father dealt records. He sold record players. He was a ballroom dance teacher. He was a professional tap dancer uh, that was in the end of vaudeville. He saw Bill Robinson dance down on Market Street uh, in Philadelphia and fell in love with it. And he had a friend that... um, connected him to uh, a local dance teacher, and then he went on to study with this guy, Johnny Madison, who was a really excellent, uh, what they call a rhythm tap dancer. It's a, it's a French-Canadian style. But when I heard it, when I, when I started standing up and four or five years old in, in the tap class, shuffled down, shuffled down, down up, down up kind of thing, I started to hear the rhythms of, of the steps as a rhythmic counterpoint to the melody of the songs that were being played. That's the way it sounded to me, more like in a dimensional sort of uh, situation. It just expanded into drumming when I was in seventh grade and then into percussion. That led to, you know, touring with R&B groups throughout the U.S. Um, And uh, then Boys to Men for six years. That led to working with a lot of other artists who over the years I've grown to admire. And some of them were my teachers and I've always been interested in Brazilian percussion, so we always had Brazilian percussion groups along the way. Uh, once we found the building, we had to do we had to do some deconstruction and con- some construction, and uh, uh, it's a long process because we didn't have a floor plan, we didn't have a business plan. Thank God, because we would have never done it. Here we are today with with a record label, uh, Tension Rod, and uh, two releases. Working on a third. You know that that's basically where I am today. It's a the studio and the label and my head is uh, it's grown locally, but it's but it's but it's thinking outwardly globally uh, as we try to combine this world in a way that makes sense musically and culturally. You educated me about the intersection between tap dancing and modern drums. Can you explain that to us? I never went to school for any of this, and I'm sort of like a a layman, I guess I would I would call myself really, which is good because there are different systems of music and different understandings of rhythm throughout the world, and I realized that when I was in my early teens, really, uh, my father's knowledge, uh, he dropped out of school in seventh grade. Uh, I guess he went to work actually, or tried to work. That didn't work out to him too much until he found. Uh, tap and he didn't understand why he was overwhelmed and attracted to it and I don't understand why he was overwhelmed and attracted to it either 
accept that I am too. But the connection between this art form known as tap kind of came together in the Appalachian region where there's people from all over the world, a lot of Scott-Irish, free African slaves, uh, people that had escaped uh, the Irish, uh, you know, after getting done their servitude, their indentured servants, all combined their dance forms, and this happened musically too, um, all kinds of traditions and fabric and making and dancing and music and playing. These things combined, I guess the main combinations that we've cited so far um, is uh, African boot dancing, Cherokee flatfoot style, which shows up sometimes. You can see it in the early tap dancers. You see it in Bill Robinson's dancing sometimes. And uh, various forms uh, of Irish dancing that combine to create this language that we call tap. This language is uh, a part of and counterpoint to the rhythms that are happening in the music itself. So uh, just a general example is I've always wondered why the 12-8 Irish jig or reel, the 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 pulse being, you know, it's sort of like a six or a twelve. You know, this ding 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 swing thing, as it later developed, is an abbreviation of that rhythm. The accented rhythmic structure inside of that 12-8 feel of it seems by looking at the fossil record that they're not only related but they're one and the same these rhythms were happening in our combined culture jazz is African expression in the United States there's no doubt of that but I think if we look at the fossil record there seems to be an input of Irish music once it gets to the mainstream, which is strange because there's nobody white playing it, really. Lighter-skinned people, like in New Orleans, yeah, of course, and the evolution goes forward. It's not a racial thing. Uh, we've made it a racial thing because we make everything a racial thing in the United States. But I think that it's worth examining how these cultures combined and expressing this rhythm physically, in the body, in tap, is something that's, you know, it's it's universal. And then we have the evolution and the creation of the drum set, which started around 1880. Uh, I guess it started 1890 in New Orleans. And I think another thing that we need to look at is, is how the first two generations of drummers were mostly tap dancers, all the way till you get to, to L.A. I mean, read Earl Palmer's biography, you know, it was Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer on on most of that stuff at Capitol, um, which is um, something that all of us in the recording industry always point to as a you know as a cornerstone and a reference. All these people came from from drumming. Drumming traditions are 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 born connected through tap, and I don't think it's it's a coincidence that uh, making drumming creating rhythmic expression with your feet on the drum set has to be related to tap. The, I mean, think of the first generation, Baby Dodds and things like that. I mean, there's, I have a record in my library downstairs where he's talking about the rhythms that he took off of Bill Robinson's feet to put on the drum set behind Louis Armstrong. So 
I think we don't know that and we don't connect it because we're not, A, focused on culture, and maybe more importantly, B, they don't teach it in the school system, in the colleges and universities, and it's simply because they don't know. People tend to teach what they're taught, and that's why our knowledge is getting smaller and smaller um, and less connected, I would say, to other subjects and other movements, um, whether they be social or political. Can you give us an example of how something directly translates from the tap tradition to a, a drum set? Well, sure. Um, if you listen to the Hot 5 and Hot 7 recordings that uh, Baby Dodds did, I mean, there's a lot of drumming before that. But if you hear... This is tap language. This is not drumming. I mean, think of the drum set. It's, it's a very new invention. And thank God we... We have this this incredible mixture of cultures, mostly African. If you look at the drum set, I see it as three drums primarily. The bass drum, the mounted tom-tom, and the floor tom-tom. Remember, it used to be called a trap set. It was a drummer and his trappings. And the same thing that happened in orchestral music uh, happened in jazz. When you look at the early drum sets, by the time you get to the 30s, the rail that went around the bass drum had Chinese tom-toms. That's where the tom-tom comes from. Um, and all kinds of early cymbals and gongs, even gongs, imported from Turkey and some from China. Um, you look at mallet instruments and even timpani. All of these instruments have their root um, in Europe. I, you know, I, I don't think that we can escape uh, the early influences of our music the question was specifically how these things are related. I'm, I, I am trying to understand how they're not related. I don't understand how they can... I mean, everywhere I look, I see influences. That, that early drum set got pared down as the music. We're, call, we're talking about jazz music now, for want of a better word, or improvised music. As that music advanced um, all the way through the bebop evolution, those three drums took on a unison uh, thing. Or remember, the, the early bass drum function was just to go boom, 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 and then uh, which matched the bass. And then the bass took over that role in, in improvised music and uh, through Kenny Clark and innovators like that. Um, Edgar Bateman from Philadelphia was another major influence Like later on in the actual evolution, the function of the drum set inside of the music. You, you see that the bass drum is used independently. And it's interesting to look at the drum set as an instrument on so many different levels. In African tradition, things that are derived, um, you usually see from directly from Africa or West African culture. And there's migration and, migration and a sharing of culture that becomes a language in itself. And drumming certainly is in most West African and Central African Mali places like that. The rhythm the rhythm conception is so advanced we still don't understand it. That's why we don't really teach things like bata and concepts of clave inside the school. But in all those traditions, whether it be bata, which is three drums, or the modern conga drum, which is bata, parts basically split up and with metal tuning mechanisms on it, 
that manifest in Cuba, uh, or the traditions, percussion traditions in the Candomblé religion in, in Brazil. It's always three drums. It's a mother and father and a child. It's always a family of rhythm, and the parts fit together as a, as a whole. I think that there's a parallel understanding, maybe unconsciously or subconsciously, of people of African descent specifically, where you're having a conversation between these two drums. The bass drum used to be 26, 28 inches and just went thump, 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 like in a traditional parade band kind of situation, all the way forward to the innovations of the great Elvin Jones with John Coltrane and others, who pitched the bass drum very high, like like another tom-tom. So the melodies actually happen on the rack tom, the floor tom, and the bass drum, while the snare drum is comping um, as a piano player would be comping behind another soloist. And the, the ride cymbal is doing this forward propulsion of the time and juggling all the rhythmic input that the drummer is getting from the soloist and from the other musicians in the rhythm section that he's playing with basically inventing the feel and making the feel happen. So I think we've actually evolved on the drum set to the point where we can actually place it with the evolution uh, in terms of this idea of three instruments all playing once in, uh, in individual parts and fitting together in a cohesive whole. Where did the snare drum come into this? Because it's so dominant in pop music these days. Well, the, the two and four is comes as far as I can tell comes out of Little Richard and his innovation that's Earl Palmer Earl Palmer is the is the guy that that broke that I guess or they called it like rent party the kind of music you would play at a at a rent party where the backbeat the two and the four are real prominent you know that kind of thing is is the birth of that two and four, if that's what you mean by the snare drum. But the evolution of the instrument itself, I uh, had a great teacher, Arimu Komba, here in Philadelphia. He suggested that I look at the bandir, which is a North African instrument played by Bedouins. And it's basically a skin. Um, it's a frame drum. Could be as small as uh, as 16 inches all the way out to around 22 I, I don't think they tape measured it. They just put an animal skin over a, over a ring. And unique to this drum is a buzzing sound where they had um, a gut wound, and it's right under the head. So if you imagine looking at the bottom of a snare drum, if the snare was on the inside tensioned and the head was tensioned over that, that's the buzzing sound, that kind of sound. That's the evolution of the snare drum, where you have something vibrating sympathetically against the string of the instrument itself. And the Germans, as far as I can tell, in terms of machining it and perfecting it, did an amazing job. They used wire snares, uh, these kinked, uh, I guess by a press and a machine, and attached on, um, on two plates on either side, and put that on the outside of the skin to make it buzz. All the early marching bands had cat gut, uh, as they called it, cat gut snares. And some people still use gut, just like some people still use skinheads on the drums. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's also a combination of the wire and the gut, too. I don't know, it just seems that, it just seem, it just seems that that's, I'm just looking at the evidence, you know, it sounds like an opinion, but 
maybe if I got a, a grant or somebody, you know, we could make these more physical connections. But the things I'm expressing are things that I've, I've actually have, have physical evidence of. I think it's amazing when you think about Earl Palmer, especially when I read his biography, I was just blown away. Where that tradition that he came out of, street dancing, tap dancing, he goes right up to the Beach Boys era, you know? This mixing of the languages is, is interesting, too. In his biography, he says that he would get called to do a date. And he, he was the contractor, which meant he would hire the other musicians. And they would have a hit, say, with, with Peggy Lee or, a, you know, a, a white artist, say. And then it would be a hit, and then he would get called to put it on a black artist or, or the reverse. He'd have a hit with a black artist more, than, more often than not. And then he would say, okay, that song's successful. Let's put it on a white artist, which is crazy. But you're talking about a time in the music business where when you open Billboard, uh, black music chart was called race music. Like, it's crazy. But this is what I'm saying. Like, if you got to look at all these innovations and changes and evolutions or de-evolutions in some, in some aspects. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you can come to a different conclusion about, about some of these things we're talking about. They stopped, I guess, race music. That happened, uh, Ahmed Erdogan, uh, Atlantic pushed that. Jerry Wexler came up with the term R&B, rhythm and blues music. You know, these are people that had vision and created our, our modern history. And it's just fascinating when you look at it. So anyway, all these things are related to me, so related that I, uh, I'm afraid sometimes I forget your original question because I just start connecting these dots in my brain. Let's talk a little bit more about the studio end of things because you're a studio owner now. Over the years, we've had a lot of conversations about the recording process and how it's evolved and how the changing technology has changed the way most people work in the studio. I know one of our common themes is that we decry the the current focus on a computer screen when it comes to music, where everything is, is visual instead of people using their ears. That's That's a very broad general statement, but I think it's a trend that you and I both find disturbing. Yeah, it's true. Uh you know, uh, some some argue that um, we've always had to deal with technology. It's often cited that you know, if you have a creation of a drum pulling a a, a skin over a over a piece of circular wood and and play, that's technology. Um, and I would say, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, the the idea is to communicate ideas. Why would you? Why would the Yoruba people Yoruba people create the bata? That's that's something that we really need to study, or that language, you know, that's technology too. Each one of these orishas has a rhythm, and you play that rhythm, and when everything is right, the orisha shows up. This is something that actually happens in the world that we live in right now. That's technology too. Um, if you look at music as a language, that in itself is the technology that we should be concerning ourselves with, not the tools that are trying to take photographs of the technology. It's it's crazy that we have to use a computer that does so many other things to record music. And uh, yeah, we've talked about this a lot. Why should that be a problem? 
That's because it interferes with taking the picture. The recording engineer, or even more often the groups that are trying to record themselves, find themselves pulled into into what's going on. Like right now, I have what I hear a little bit in my headphones is maybe cell phone interference from us having this conversation. And I'm, and I'm staring at meters and making sure that the audio doesn't drop out because the clock isn't right. You know, th- this is not anything that either you or I or anybody else on the planet should have to worry about. This is stuff that I think is inflicted on us. Now you could argue, hey, when we were doing tape, you needed to have a tape operator. They needed to align the tape machine for the particular tape um, that they were using. And there was a lot of technical stuff. Yes, that was right. But I think it's interesting when you look at what the Blue Note label, the Impulse label, I mean, so many other independents, Actual, all the work that was done in Europe, all these things, and I'm talking about the, the information that was disseminated early in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, was all done analog. That word is interesting, isn't it? Like, where does analog come from? Does it come from uh, analogy, analogous to the way we hear? Um, this conversation is very interesting when you start talking about hearing and how people actually perceive things. For me, multi-tracking and making everything perfect and harmonizing the vocals and creating harmonies from one line is all, you know, it's great. It's, it's great when you go to the carnival, you know, and you play the amusement, but you go home and you live your life. You know, when you're a kid, you go back to school, you go back to the analog world. And I don't think that there's any doubt that people are, have lost the value of music. Look at our world. They want it for free. They don't want to pay for it. And I think that the reason that that is, at least partly, is because we don't believe what we hear. Because it's not analogous to the world we live in. Um, if you listen to a Beethoven symphony or, or, or you know, an- anything, you say, okay, I can hear the music. It sounds like they all played it at the same time. Yes, they edited the performances together. But look at all the people that, when you're listening to the take, that are playing together harmoniously. In a, in a hierarchy of sounds. That just reflects nature, and that's where we come from. That's why we can relate to it. Buddy Guy, you know, Bobby Bland, certainly James Brown. Did they need a multi-track? You know, and it seems that the Beatles did pretty well with four-track. I'm not one of these old people that maybe I am, but, you know, I just want the tools to stay out of the way of the creation. And I want Sonics the best possible shot of the recording Um, because we're taking photos for the future uh, for future generations and uh, I want them to believe the stuff you know drop the needle on a Motown record or just just play it back digitally or whatever and that's what you're hearing the connection between the people usually all playing together in the same room at the same time I think we need to examine this to, to see what kind of future we actually are claiming that we live in and making sure that it's actually connected to the past. We, d- we didn't seem to have a problem with that up towards uh, the early 80s. Uh, and then things kind of went in a different direction as far as I can tell from the evidence. You know, one of the themes that, that I've always had, even back in the analog days, was that the connection was between the person making the music and the person listening to the music. And... 
in the recording process, our job was, and this is an exaggeration, but it sort of makes the point, our job was to do as little harm to that relationship as possible. You know, and that, that sort of implies a transparency in the technology which has never existed. I mean, we've always had to deal with technology. But do you feel that the technology today further inhibits that transition from the performer to the listener? When you break the connection between the ensemble, or you get in the way of that, or what we're talking about specifically, the technology gets in the way of that. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, we're having a technical problem in here. Can you guys just wait a moment? We're trying to figure it out. Or, you know, a million and one things that can get in the way of just taking the picture of the music. And that influences negatively the reason that you're all together. It's supposed to be transparent. Think of the mile sessions. Think of all the outtakes that are, that are coming to light now at Motown. Technically, it just worked. But it rare, not, not, it wasn't often that right in the middle of a session something stopped, not like today, because there's, the technology has placed itself sometimes right in the center chair between the speakers, and everybody has to be looking at the screen to make sure everything is correct just to take the picture. And I just don't understand why we accept that as the future that we designed before it. I don't think we did design, design this as, as something that this digital world that could take place of analog. There's a lot of technical reasons uh, to question this. And, I, yeah, I don't think it has a place. I mean, the, the interruption thing and how it gets into the way of the process of recording is uh, distressing to me. It's always something that the technology always seems to be getting in the way. Yeah, I think even back in the analog days, I was pretty sensitive to that. And I wanted to make sure that as far as the performers were concerned, it was a pretty comfortable environment because for a lot of people, recording is stressful. Right. You know, and I think it's the job of whether you're the producer, the engineer, or doing both of those simultaneously. It's your job to make sure that they're going to do their best, and that means eliminating all those problems, eliminating all those distractions yes. so they can focus on their performance. Right. In the tape days, there, there was a certain inevitable amount of um, interruption just because, let's say you were recording a vocal and you, you know, the, the vocalist made a mistake and you had to back up the tape and punch it in. There's a, there's a delay there where you're backing up the tape, finding the right spot, figuring out where to, to do the punch. Right. And, you know, to some extent, I think digital is easier that way because you don't have that time rewinding the tape. Right. On the other hand, it, it sort of puts more pressure on a performer because they, they instantly are, are able to record another take. Right. Rather than waiting that period of time that it took to back up the tape. And it gave them a, a little bit of time to catch their breath, think about what they're doing. Yeah, to relax. consider. Right. Right. That's another, that's another analog to being human, isn't it? The tape machine is closer to the way, the way humans 
function in a way, you know. The tape is the is the memory and, you know, you go back and you have time to maybe change something. You have a little bit more time to consider what you're doing. To take a breath and to 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 be in the present. Yeah, I don't want to imply that I want to go back to tape because I really don't. And everybody that actually came up using tape is saying, "What? What are these kids talking about?" You know, like, and I and I, I'm not. I mean, I started, I started in tape, but I started in tape-based digital. That meant no undo. So I understood. I understood the benefits of digital, and I thought there were a lot of a lot of benefits, but tape-based. Unless, of course, you did a bad punch and that was permanent, you lost it. I thought it was very durable and very predictable and, 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 and it functioned in the same way as you're uh, relating to, you know, oh, well, let me let me just make sure I know, okay, I'm going to write it down now. Where is it? Three minutes and ten seconds, the, the first hook starts. Let me make a note of that. Take the time, punch it into the machine. The machine goes back, uh, sort of gets in the in the right spot and starts to play and get ready for the punch. So it functioned the same way um, in terms of speed or lack of speed that analog tape did. The only difference was, of course, it was digital. But you still had the time, uh, you know. Not that we should go back and slow the digital process down. It's ironic that all through the early days when people were trying to see if Pro Tools was actually something that would actually work, and they suffered through all these setbacks and problems as 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 the the company itself tried to figure out what it was that they had invented, which I guess started out as a word processor and they just got a word processor idea and did it to music, which was an interesting innovation. But it took such a long time to get any fidelity out of it that I I couldn't understand why people wanted to do that when it sounded so bad. And it's only till recently where it started to sound okay to me. But uh, I think that the reason that that is is because of the promise of convenience. And if there's anything that American want, an American wants, it's for their life to be convenient. You know, they don't want to work. And it's crazy. You find your meaning from the work that you do. And nothing is convenient that's great. It's not convenient to write a symphony or to write a great pop song. It's not convenient to get a good drum track. There's nothing convenient about doing all this stuff. And it seems like we're seeking convenience so much where we don't want to even have a band. We'll do the drums. We'll 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 do the track. You know, let's make a loop. We'll just loop the drums. Like if you follow maybe, if you follow the history of of the recording process, you start out with you know real real low fidelity. It gets better and better. We get to the tape era when it sounds pretty darn good, and then we get into the digital era where. It doesn't quite sound as good for a while, but eventually catches up. And now we're at a point where the recording studio formats are, you know, if people utilize them, are pretty high resolution. And I, I'm talking about PCM recording, the standard kind of digital that we're all familiar with. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, but beyond that, you have the DSD realm, which is another approach to doing digital, which is not as new as most people think. I mean, Bell Labs figured this out in the 1930s. It was one of their proposed digital schemes. And for a variety of reasons, for audio, PCM won out. And for me, working with 
DSD now for a few years. I think the difference comes down to what does that recording make you feel? How does that recording feel to you? You know, it's it's really hard for me to sit there and analyze the difference between that and a and a good PCM recording. I I can right. I can almost fool myself into believing that there's artifacts that I can always hear and they're certainly there when you come aware of them. They're they're pretty obvious. But if you're just sitting back and listening to the music in a in a broader sense and just saying to yourself, how does this music make me feel? I think there's a difference. And I, I wonder if you experience the same thing. In a symphonic thing or in a string quartet thing or a brass quartet, you're trying to capture what's already built into the composition and in the music and in the performance. And that's really what has always motivated and moved me. What does the ensemble sound like and how to best capture that? If you're doing uh, a, a form of DSD recording, it's realism. You know, it's just realism. And all of a sudden you're considering the dimensions of the sound. It's PCM. Yeah, you can pan it left and right into one speaker or the other speaker or somewhere in the middle. But it's not as wide as a DSD recording. And it's also not as deep. It doesn't have as much depth. as Now, why? Everybody is questioning why, okay? And when, when you designed your preamp, you, I'm sure you went through different incarnations and you said, why? Why? So a lot of this life is asking the right questions if you're going to talk about a career or an evolution, especially like yours. It's because you asked why. You became your own uh, professor in a way. And you, you saw how things behaved and you, you went in this direction. And you, it was your intuition that took you there. So everything that it is to be human, you bring to the listening experience. And there are so many recordings now, especially right now, uh, the artist could be great. Like uh, a Christine Aguilera, for example, was just a supreme vocalist in, in my estimation. Those recordings sound great, but they could sound so much better if they used the technology that we actually have at our disposal right now in DSD. It's wider, it's deeper. I think that, you know, we're in this living in this convenience world and people aren't reaching as high as we should be reaching. I think they'd rather eat too much, drink a beer, and watch a video. Man, you got to fight for, you got to fight, you know. Martha Graham fought for her vision. You know, Lester Horton fought for his vision. Uh, Stravinsky fought, <laughs> you know, uh, Bernstein. Uh, all these people that are part of our culture, do we not want to include that aesthetic? Do we not want to bring it forward? At every front, we need to we need to fight in this thing. It needs to be great. You know why do ribbons sound the way that they sound? I mean, you you hit me to this, you know, to really ribbons have been around and people go, oh, the ribbon put a ribbon on this, and you know it's been something that's been happening in the studio for the last twenty years. But if we look at why it sounds good, um, minimal miking and DSD is a beautiful combination of of things and. I think that we need to we need to just look at 
look at this again and again and again and, and ask ourselves, ask ourselves the question, why does it sound? Uh, is, it, is there a relationship between few microphones and the actual recording being in phase with itself? What is the impact of using multiple microphones and layering track on track physically? What is the impact on the music physically? It, could it be that your brain is spending time trying to figure things out um, where things are in the in the in the stereo field to where you get bored and it sounds one-dimensional and the next thing comes out and it sounds one-dimensional and the next recording comes out it has a a real visceral drum impact and it knocks you into just a one-dimensional world when the actual reality is multi-dimensional and, right. you know there's another aspect here too because on the one hand we're talking about how we achieve this, you know, almost mystical level of of realism and impact in the recording studio. And yet, for most people, they're listening to pretty dim copies of that in the sense of a MP3 or other digitally data-reduced format, you know, listening on their phone, computer speakers, earbuds, whatever. I mean, it's not a hi-fi system. You know, they're not going to hear 40 hertz. It's not going to move them. You know, it's a, it's a different world. As we get more and more sophisticated in the recording end, it seems that the consumer end just is sort of stuck at this, you know, I wouldn't call it exactly low fidelity, but certainly far, far from the potential impact. And and I'm always amazed how good MP3 sounds. And I think the people that develop those schemes are, are absolute geniuses to be able to throw away so much data and still have, you know, quite acceptable sounding music. But, you know, how much does that affect people today and the way they respond to music? If you're going to end up with an MP3 stream, again, why would you do that? Because it's convenient. Because all the early LimeWire stuff and delivery services were trying to get as much down the pipe when it was limited at the time, and it was, talking about the time of, of dial-up connections. And so that's how you end up with MP3. So if you did the highest resolution as possible, when you did get down to losing things, you would retain more information by the time you hit MP3 because you started at a higher resolution to begin with. If you start with a PCM thing that we you know have grown up with with digital, say CD delivery service at 1644.1, then you're going to get a really bad result when you finally get to MP3 because you, you've compromised at so many steps uh, in the chain. Um, not so much with DSD. If the recording itself is great and you go to MP3, it's going to sound 75% better because you started so much better. You're actually going to lose less. So, uh, yeah, it seems kind of simple yeah, to me. I would agree. I may, I've made that observation myself, and I don't know that we've ever talked about that before. But there is something about the DSD capture that gets translated down to that MP3 level, and, and it does make the MP3 sound better. So if you can get some of the limitations out of the way, example, specifically what we're talking about with PCM, if you can go as high as you can 
I mean, I don't understand. Oh, 48 sounds so much better than 44. Yes, my, my Insonic sampler at 48K sounded so much better than it did at 44. It was obvious. I didn't know why at the time, but it sounded a lot better. And then people argued for 96, and I'm like, are you sure about that? And then some people, 192. And, oh, okay. But when I heard DSD, I heard a recorded DSD playback on an SACD. It was a delivery format then, the disc, physical disc. When I heard at Tower Records, when it was still there on Broad Street here in Philly, and I heard, I, I what was it? Oh, it was Weather Reports. I think it was the one with Birdland on it. I think it's called Birdland. It was a remark you made. I think it's the second track. And it's the most beautiful melody. And when I heard some of the things that Bedrena, the the percussionist and Akuna put together, I was like, oh, he hit that triangle and it was more left than it seemed that my ear was in the headphones. It went past. And I actually remember physically looking at the room from the triangle strike and I was like where is that and then this other thing was 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 uh, the Wayne Shorter play was to the right and like up and all of a sudden I was completely blown away by how much space there was in the recording it was past the right speaker it was past the left speaker it was above and back it was so dimensional it was to me the promise of digital and from that time and I guess we're talking about uh, a little over 15 years ago has to be I was completely completely not the same I was different when I walked out the door after experiencing that and I was I was physically moved by that so yeah it's it's that dramatic 48 to 96 you could have people fail in a double blind test I would say uh, 48 to 96 I got questions about people being able to hear that same same on up the spectrum but when you put dsd versus pcm anybody is going to hear that and most importantly the consumer is going to hear that and that impacts all the way down the chain and back so that's just how i feel about it and it's from what i experienced it's not something i read in a magazine this is this is real life and it's really important uh, to me how things sound like isn't that really what we're talking about people in studios and musicians and orchestral uh, performers and conductors uh, I don't think there's any reason to to look back um, we should accept where where the promise of digital is and move forward from here I mean how long how long has DSD been available to us is it 20 years it's such a big question mark in my mind when I'm on the, when we're on this topic. Like my world stops. I, I have to forget about it. And go on to do to do other things. It's just confusing to me. But lots of things when I think about it are confusing. It's like spending an hour on a snare drum sound. I'm like it still sounds like a snare drum. It's a snare noise and it's annoying. And is that all that that thing does? listen to the sounds do your homework you can't do it on youtube stop looking at music put the turntable up get a decent pair of speakers drop the needle on the vinyl read the credits and see where we are in 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 in, in recorded history you have to be prepared to 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 catch the ball when it's thrown to you even if you don't have a glove you got to know <laughs> you, you have to know 
You can't not know. It's a huge responsibility to, to, to be an engineer, recording engineer. I think it's everybody's responsibility. How can you go forward if you don't know? You no, know, that you've brings been? up another point, and that is, you know, your average listener today, and and this I think applies to a lot of people, younger people in the recording business. They've never really heard much music that didn't come out of speakers, whether it was a recording or whether it was a live performance. Because even if you go to a Broadway show now, the pit orchestra is mic'd and you're hearing it through little speakers over your head. And I think for a lot of people, they have no sense of what the music really sounds like. Well, it's, it's such a great, a great point that you make. I mean, we could, you, you could, you could, instead of that being a question, you could just make that a statement. I mean, especially coming from you, whose whose brain was formed by yeah. listening to the Philly Orchestra and listening. Well, to one of the things I, I mean, did when I had a studio was once a year I would take the entire staff, not just the engineers, but everybody there weren't that many. We, I'd take them all to a Philadelphia Orchestra concert, the Academy of Music. Some people were enthusiastic about it. Some people, mm-hmm. you know, really didn't want to do it. But I sort of made them do it. And I said, here's your job. Even if you don't like the music and you're not interested in it, just listen to the sound of it. Because this is what real music sounds like. This is what we're trying to give our listeners. Right Now, we're not, you know, I didn't record much classical music in my studio days, but the same principles apply, you know? It it should sound like the music. Well, you know, basic engineering, um, and this is hard for you know young engineers to understand, what does the instrument sound like in the room? Choose a, uh, a lens or a microphone. Choose a, choose a microphone. Consider that microphone's personality, how it hears, what it likes, what it doesn't, and place that then go down the wire, follow the chain to what kind of preamp do you want to use. Hopefully they have a choice or have had enough experience to, you know, experience a, a really nice preamp like yours and take it into the into the converter, uh, hopefully that's good so you can get a fairly good representation of what's happening. But you're you're absolutely right. You you have to take it back to what the thing sounds like in the room, and then that's related to listening to ensembles live. I've been talking to Jim Hamilton of Rittenhouse Soundworks. There is more to our conversation, and Jim may be back in a future episode. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.